on today's episode of Gathering the Kings. Err on the side of action rather than inaction, because if you're inactive around something you know is important, you will fail, period, because you're not going to try, you're not going to learn. Um, right. And so whatever the sphere is, we err on the side of action, failure, learning, and reaction. And we encourage everyone to do that here. And I think that's paid off. You are listening to Gathering the Kings with Chaz Wolf, featuring fellow seven, eight, and even nine figure business owners who have real battle scars from business and life, but have prevailed as the king that they are designed to be. We welcome high-performing entrepreneurs to the stage in order to reveal the real of the real on what it takes to build a successful business today. We dissect the good and bad decisions they've made along the way that give a true and accurate picture of the journey of success and how you too can get there. Through this dialogue, you will learn the value of growing your network and surrounding yourself with power players and kings like today's guest. Grab your pen and notebook because we're about to dive in. What's up, everybody? Chaz Wolf, Gathering the Kings podcast. Today, I've got Matthew Burke on the King stage, my man. How we doing? We're doing great today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad that you're doing great. Was it because you had a cup of coffee today? Every day, all day long, coffee is my world. I wish as, a, as another high-performing person that loves energy, I wish I liked coffee. But today, we're going to talk about coffee in a lot of different ways. And I want you to give us all the secrets. But in all seriousness, thank you for being here. Tell us what kind of business that you have. Beanbox, put really simply, was founded to help people discover the joys of really coffee. So what we do is we source coffee from about 50 coffee roasters throughout the United States. Wow. We bring their freshly roasted coffee here to our facility in Seattle. We curate it into different products that give people the experience of trying different coffees, whether that's a box with four different coffees or a box with 16 different coffees from all over the world. We want people everywhere to understand what it is to experience the best coffee there is without having to go out and go to a cafe and be worried they don't know what to ask for, or maybe they're not hip enough to the local coffee shop. And <laughs> we want to make it more accessible. And we've been doing that for eight years. We got a couple hundred thousand customers. And uh, to give you a sense of how much coffee we move, last year we moved 375,000 pounds of coffee wow. from here in Seattle out to customers all over the US. And we hope they all loved it. We think they do. And that's kind of our business is to make people happy in that way. I love it. There are many times, obviously most people drink coffee. I'm just one of the weird ones that doesn't, but I'm a jelly, a coffee sewer. Like I, I wish I did. I wish I wanted to, because there's, there's a lot of joy. As you said, the word joy comes every time I hear people talk about their coffee. Yeah. It's like this very joyous time for them. And, and I'm jealous. <laughs> yeah. One thing I've just found personally, just as a, as an entrepreneur is, before we started this business, to me, coffee was a caffeine delivery vehicle. Okay. And once I started getting into it, and I am by no means like an aficionado or like a coffee expert or whatever, but once you appreciate what you're drinking, it stops being like, oh, this is my caffeine kick. And it starts oh. being an experience that you construct your morning around where you have moments of reflection. You can appreciate the taste of coffee. It's less, I need five cups and more. I'm going to try something different and let me actually open my brain and see what it tastes like. And that for me personally, in my, or I guess in my personal professional life, because it is that boundary 
between yeah. your personal morning and your professional morning. It's been just transformative for me and a real part of my life now. I love the experience that you just described because you're right. <clears throat> it's not, and I think we have these things with different parts of our lives that we can make either just about getting through or we can do the same thing with a workout, right? But this experience that you're referring to of really connecting with the coffee or the moment, really. And um, so I just love that you're providing the experience or you're facilitating the experience, let's say, with different tastes all over the world. I love what you're doing. You're basically bringing it right to the doorstep. They don't have to think. It's fantastic. So from a business perspective, I want to hear your story. We're going to get into that here in a second. But before we jump into that, I want to know, what's your why? Why are you doing this? You've obviously been uber successful, hundreds of thousands of clients. You could probably sail away. You're still building. Why? Yeah, I love that question. I think the truth is there are two things. One is that I'm a builder. It's that question like, what would you do if you didn't have to work to earn a living? And the answer is I'd be building something. And that's my motivation. I love building up people. I love building up machinery. I love building up software. I love building businesses. And that's just what gets me going on a day when I create something new or optimize something or figure something out. Like it's all in the build for me, a hundred percent. That is what keeps me going. And even when I'm not working, I'm tr trying to put something together, fix something, build something. That's number one. Number two, I've had a lot of jobs where the work you were doing didn't have a particular, it had a purpose maybe to make money or you're building another ad server or a piece of a search engine or whatever, but it didn't necessarily make people happy. And right. so what I love about this business in particular is like, we have an explicit product brand positioning that's all about making people happy with the product. And that extends to the folks who work here. We try and make this a, jo a joyful place. And I probably keep repeating that like a mantra. It's all about the joy. It's all about the joy. But for me, that's the second thing is like, if you can find work that centers around people being happy, that's a pretty good way to live your life. And that's this business provides that for me. So number one, the build, number two, the joy. And uh, I think we have a great balance of that and what we do. That's not to say that it's not a knife fight every day. But <laughs> yeah, that's part of the building. That's part of the build uh, is that struggle. Yeah, 100%. Okay. So you're a builder. I love how you talked about even building your team and building joy into the business and the team. I think that a lot of entrepreneurs listening today, myself included, desire those things like you do. I want to know, has that always been your hope or have you always been a builder or did you always already know that you were a builder? Has this been a recent thing? Give us a little bit of the background on the mindset. Yeah, that's a great question. For me personally, I've always been a builder. From the time I was a little kid, like back in the 70s when computers were brand new, I was lucky enough to have access and we had a computer at home. And from that moment, oh my God, there's this machine and it's like a blank slate and you can tell it to do things and it'll do things. And like, how amazing is that? As a seven, eight or nine-year-old, someone telling you that like you can kind of, you can program the world when you're that young, you go to school and parents tell you what to do and you don't have a lot of control and play is the balance against that control. Right. And for me, play was centered around learning how to tell computers to do things. And it was like someone handed you the keys. Little <laughs> did I know in the 70s that like the keys to the kingdom were going to come through the computers within a couple of decades. And now everyone's lives center around interacting with computers and machines. And so I, I feel very lucky there. And so that for me was formative. Now, 
That said, professionally, I've been in positions where I was working for someone else and I wasn't fully engaged in the purpose of what I was building. I was still building, but it hasn't always been that way in every job or position I've had. And that, that's why I feel particularly lucky. For me, the transformation was my first job at a grad school was for, you know, everybody knows Inc. Magazine. And that was a startup run like a startup all about small businesses and startups and to be a builder for them dealing with the web when the web was brand new in a company run like a startup that was meant to help startups build their companies. For me, that was just transformative. That's when I knew, look, this is what you're going to do the rest of your career. And I wanted to optimize for being in a place where it was all entrepreneurial, all about building. And that first job for me was like, it set an imprint around, yes, you can build and you can help other people build. So I think for me, that kind of cemented it. I haven't always been lucky enough to, again, balance these, are you balancing your joy with the thing that right. motivates you most? But for where I am now, it's just a great balance. I love that you were honest about it not being always balanced. I think that most entrepreneurs <clears throat> desire for some sort of balance, but the reality of it is that it probably is always going to be a work in progress. And, and the joy, I think what you have said in essence, tell me if I'm wrong, or maybe if I'm, if you want to add something to it, but really, if you can find the thing and for you and I, we use the word builder. I think everything you've said, I think I even have it written on my website. Like I'm a builder. Yeah. So it's okay. If I can do the thing that I quote unquote love or believe that that's in my identity, shouldn't that bring me joy? And so I think that's like the hack a little bit is to find that. It doesn't mean, like you said, everything's going to be joyful all the time and still got to be actively or even proactively searching for how to connect work with joy or just joy with anything that we do. Because even the family stuff, like we were just talking about before the before we jumped on, I got four kids and one's a seven week old. Right. It's like today it was work and I was looking for the joy. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I like to say, I think people like to use the, especially when they talk to young folks, they're like, find your passion and do that. And I think passion is actually really misleading because it romanticizes what real motivation can be. And so the example I like to give is a bunch of years ago, we were in the middle, we have this holiday peak every year. And uh, I guess we had a new employee and they were coming like, who do I report to? There's a CEO. What do you mean? And they pointed to the back and I was like sweeping up the back of our tiny place, which was overrun with product and people. And they're like, what are you talking about? Like, how, that's the CEO, the guy with the broom. And for me, like some, sometimes what needs to happen in a business is someone needs to sweep up. And I've found that I can enable other people to do more like higher value work. If I'm the guy sweeping the floor, if I'm the thing at the bottom of the toaster, catching all the crumbs, they can do higher value work. And that's a great example where I'm not building anything, but it's all in service of kind of making this company grow and supporting that company. And so I say the same thing with struggles where you may find yourself sweeping the floor. You may find yourself gritting your teeth through a tight cash crunch. You may find yourself like getting a deal and losing a deal or getting your forecast wrong. And all of that can feel very painful. But when you have that framework of it is all in the service of building something and every day it's going to be different and then it's okay to suffer and it's okay to struggle. And like my passion is not sweeping. My passion is not losing deals or jockeying spreadsheets to make sure we have our three-year forecast or those are not my passions, but I resolve all of that down to 
we're building something here. And for that reason, it all feels joyful, even if it's not something I want to do. Yeah, 100%. Such a great way to say it. Okay, so you've given us a little bit of through this, your a little bit of your history. I want to know how did this company come to be? How did like why coffee? Why this business? Why this model? Tell us the story. My co-founder and I thought we would escape we would escape the gravity of our founding story, but we have never succeeded. And this company came out of a real startup failure. Okay. And we pivoted to this. And so I'll just give a kind of a quick summary. My co-founder and I have been working together for coming on 16 years. And we got together in 2012 to basically build a series of apps and data mining software and a bunch of other stuff to help people share personal recommendations. So our thinking was like, okay, you go online, you read reviews, what's better than that? You know, I may trust you for your recommendation on where to go skiing or what book to read next, but maybe not so much for local restaurants because you live somewhere else. So we built multiple apps. We built this whole data platform where people could swap person to person recommendations and everyone loved it. Everyone said they were going to love it. People used it initially, but it hadn't, it didn't have that kind of growth that we really needed to make a good go of it. And we did it for almost two years. And we just got to a place where we're like, this is not working because it's not growing. And you have a great question, which is if you, maybe this is a shortcut, but if you could look at what one metric, what would it be? And for us, the metric was like, when, how often do people come back? And people were not coming back. Got it. And so we got to a spot where we're like, look, we've raised some money here. We've done a lot of, we've, we're personally vested in this, but it's not growing. People are not coming back. What do we do? Yeah. And the answer was something like we spent two weeks where every day we walked somewhere between three and like 12 miles, just talking about, could we make a go of it? What else could we do? What was adjacent? What have we learned? And it was a really very difficult time for both of us. And what we realized in the process of that is whenever we would interview somebody about how do you use your phone? How do you share personal recommendations? We would take them to coffee. And for us, neither of us were coffee kind of experts, but at the time we were working in a little area of Seattle called Fremont. And Fremont has a couple of wonderful little tiny cafes. They roast their own coffee. And we noticed that when we took people to coffee downtown, we'd just show up in a Starbucks and we wouldn't think twice about it. But when we did it in Fremont, we went to these little cafes and the coffee was like, it wasn't a difference of degree, it was a difference of kind. And so there was something to that. A, coffee was just the social connection between us, and that was very powerful, yeah. whether or not it was Starbucks or something else. But B, all of a sudden our kind of senses were open to this, to this experience of connecting with people and enjoying the coffee and not have it just be like, oh, we'll meet at Starbucks, no problem. So we started digging into the market. We came up with an investment hypothesis and we pivoted from speculative software development to a physical, hard good, grocery oriented product. And we did that pivot within a couple of weeks. We didn't have a product. We didn't know what the product would be. We set up a website, we set up a shopping cart and out of nowhere, like this hypothesis kind of came to be is that people wanted to experience better coffee. And that was it. And it took off really quickly, but this was a pivot around, you know, like it was a 360 degree pivot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was bizarre. And we've never escaped the gravity of that story because it shows you like you can take something that is 
you can admit that it's a failure and learn something from it. And it can springboard you into an area you never would have imagined going into. And eight years into it, it's, as I said, it's been really transformative for all of us. I heard several things there. Thanks for sharing the struggle piece there. We all have those moments to hear a guy like you make such a successful pivot you would never have to tell that story. You could have said, my, my co-founder and I, we started meeting with people in a coffee shop. We had this great idea and you could have this very flowery story. But the fact that it stemmed from a failure is actually that much more powerful, but <clears throat> you first have to be vulnerable. And so I want to just point that out to the listener is that, of course, if you've listened to this show at all, we literally ask for a failure or a bad decision. So we all, at this point, you've known that this is what it takes to be uber successful. But I still think that we feel like we have to portray this, I'm perfect all the time. Or if I have a failure, then it, it, like I'm, I get stuck. I was just talking to somebody just mm-hmm. yesterday. And they know this concept that the, in the failure, the reality isn't necessarily the failure. It's the fact that you get back up, learn what happened, dust yourself off, and you keep going. As long as you pick yourself up more times than you fall, then you keep going, you win. And that's such a simple concept. But we forget it in the moment. And so when you guys were like really nitty gritty in that, was there talks of just throw it away? We don't know. Oh, what yeah. to do, or was it always what's next? Give us the thoughts there. Yeah, we didn't. We had raised some money. We had a little bit left. But for us, even before we went back to our investors and said, hey, we're doing this really bizarre pivot. It was a, I, I think where people get confused and we really muddled through this, but came to clarity is people focus on the failure. This failed. It did not work. What we thought was going to work did not work. And they focus on that as being a negative. But really, the question is, what do you do about it? Anytime we work with a partner here, and I've done this my whole career, if I'm working with a third party, I say, look, we're getting into business together. Something's going to go wrong. That's going to happen. So really, the question is, like, what do you do and what do I do when things go wrong? And if you can agree around that, that it's going to happen, but what's important is how you move through it, then you don't look at failure as failure. It's just like, oh, we, this didn't work. We redirect. And so I, I think that was where we landed. And then we went back to our investors and we said, look, we're resolved to do a hard pivot and a bizarre one. So we're going to tell you about it, but we're also going to give you the option. Like we just shut it all down and we'll go, maybe we'll go and do it separately. But what we could have done is taken the business, folded it, and then started anew. But what we did is we went back to our investors. And for us as well, we went back and we said, no, we're, you bet on us. And maybe the idea doesn't work, but here's our next one. And so if you're comfortable rolling this in, then everyone preserves their ownership. And what we did as co-founders is we recapped the company. So we were evenly split and we, it was a restart, but under the umbrella of the old one, yeah. And so literally, rather than saying, close this down and start anew, the, just the content of what we're doing is different. And that, that's really hard Like to, to be known for as a software guy and to go back to all the people who think highly of you and say, yeah, it's kind of like, we're sure there's going to be tons of software and it's going to be technology focused, but now we're going to sell coffee. And they're like, what are you talking about? You're a software guy. This, that's your whole career. Like we, we bet on a software business and you're like, yeah, actually, like there's something really here in coffee, like just give us enough rope to hang ourselves and let us play it out. And that's what we did. And that was also hard personally. I think I had a lot of fears about my career is all about software. I'm known for this. 
everyone who trusts me around these specific things, what am I doing selling coffee? And the answer is that's perfect. It worked out perfectly, but getting into it, you wouldn't imagine that I would end up selling, selling coffee to people. Yeah. And I'm sure that your skills that the people have trusted you in for so long have come to use, I'm sure in many different facets when it comes to software and marketing and all the things that, that it takes to run a business successfully in an online space, like what you have. And I think that it comes full circle. And I think that's maybe the last little piece here before we move on is that, of course, in the failure, if we can look back and we can learn, it's great. But then the things that we pick up, and even in the moment, you can look back, I I can think of some specific circumstances in my own life where I look back and I'm like, okay, I don't know exactly. Or maybe I thought it was this one thing that I was supposed to learn. And that that was, it was good. But it was years later, I look back again, I go, there was that other thing too. And I've been using it this Mm -hmm. whole, didn't know it. So I think that there's a word there. You want to add anything to that before we move on? Yeah, I would just say I've been doing e-commerce for a a really long time. But what I never imagined about e-commerce, especially if you're manufacturing your own product, e-commerce is, it's the opera of the software world. And the reason is that it has every one of these components. You have to be good at all these different components, or you have to build a company that's good at all these different things about sourcing and supply chain, about production and manufacturing, about inventory and moving product, about shipping, about your catalog, about your integrations, about weird things like postage and carriers. And it's like all of these things batten around a product and e-commerce, when you do it end to end, requires competence in 25 different things As opposed to if you're moving bits and electrons around, there's a lot of complexity, but you don't have to master moving things in a warehouse or moving them from warehouse to warehouse or production flow or food safety. or So to me, it's like all of these different disciplines bundled into an overall work, which is how do I source product, make new product and get it to my customers in a way that gets them happy. And that's a multidisciplinary challenge. Yeah. It sounds like just a perfect fit for a builder. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) I'll get all my materials, all the things I need to learn, and let me put it all together to create something. Okay. I want to know of that good decision. Obviously you just highlighted a pivot, but maybe once you pivoted, what was a good decision that you made in the coffee business specifically that has really enabled a lot of success that may be duplicatable for the listeners? Yeah. So I I think one thing that's difficult is, especially if you find yourself, whether it's through professional development or you have an investor circle, or one thing we've tried to do is we've tried to talk to everyone. So even if we're not raising money, we talk to people in VC. We talk to angels all the time. We talk to people who are in similar businesses. Every time we can be helpful, like we try and triangulate what we're doing and how we're doing it all the time. Yeah. And I think Something that we've found is that, especially among investors, they want to pigeonhole you. And that's because if you're going to invest in something, it has to be clear and simple and legible, and you got to be able to page it forward and predict it and value it. And like one of the, I think one of the best things we've done is from the very beginning, what we heard from a certain type of investor is like, oh, you're a subscription company. You're a coffee subscription company. And so you need to worry about things like retention and churn and uh, your ARR, and they turned us into a software as a service company, and we're not. And so in the very beginning, we thought, oh my God, if we're going to sell coffee subscriptions, like we ought to worry about that. We have a hundred subscribers. So like, they're going to churn. There's nothing you can do about it. 
And even when you're a thousand or 10,000 or 30,000 or more, like there are some parts of churn you cannot do anything about. Can you make it harder? Sure. Can you incentivize people to stay? Sure. But churn is absolutely the wrong metric. And it, when by the time you're focusing on churn, you see your company in one light. And what we've done that I think has been a great decision is we said, forget subscription. Maybe not you specifically, because I know you're not into coffee yet, but you are a customer. You don't care if it's a subscription. You just care about your coffee. And so we learned the hard way that like we sell coffee and sometimes our customer wants a subscription and sometimes they just want to buy it a la carte and sometimes they want to buy it as a gift. And so we, in the beginning, we focused on all these metrics we thought yeah. were important to a subscription coffee company. Right. And what we learned is just people wanted to trust us for better coffee. And so we sell one-off boxes, one-off bags. We sell all kinds of gifts. And so it's up to yeah. the customer because the customer doesn't care about our business model. They just care about better coffee. Yeah. And so that, that has enabled us to do all kinds of things that if we had just said like, how do we optimize for being a subscription company? We would be out of business. The complexity and simplicity of what you just said really has my mind just hitting on like 17 cylinders right now. I want to ask so many questions all at once. When you said an investor mindset really tries to pin you down, and that's really what it was. They want to niche you into a coffee subscription business. So number one, they can understand. They can understand what they're investing in, what the return is going to be. That makes sense. There's a lot of business advisors or gurus that would say, you have to niche like that. You have to pick, mm -hmm. you gotta be, you're either subscription or you're all a car or you got to really narrow it down. So that way your marketing can be super clear, which I agree with those things, but I actually feel like you took it one layer, even more simple, which some people might look at and say, <clears throat> you actually complicated it because now you have all a car and you have gifts and now you have subscriptions and you have this huge menu now, but I actually think you simplified it one more time and said, no, we're just a coffee company. We're not a coffee subscription. That's we right. just sell coffee and lots of people like to buy coffee in different ways. And maybe you don't service all of those ways, but if you're about a coffee experience, I want to know where do I go for a coffee experience? I go to the Fremont cafe. That's what you want your customers thinking about you. It's not necessarily where do I get my subscription from? That's right. And I think if you're an investor, you would see the world as like, this is a subscription company. I know how to measure that. I know how to guide that in its growth. I know how to value that. And we've always said, okay, the, let, let us tell you why that's not necessarily the only thing that matters. We have many people who will get one box a month and they'll decide for whatever reason that they no longer want one box a month. You would have us pause there and say that is a churned customer. But what we find is now they're not getting one box a month. They're coming back and they're buying one and a half bags every week. And so that, that comes back to something that kind of you asked about, and I mentioned before is what is your repeat purchase rate? What is your repeat visit? What is your repeat engagement? What is the LTV of the customer? And that LTV can be expressed as a la carte, as gift, as subscription. It's up to the customer how to express their purchase. And it's yeah. up to us to encourage a higher LTV. But that doesn't mean you have to be subscription only. And I would add, like recently, we've complicated it and simplified it even further, which is we're now selling at retail. So we built a wholesale business. Yeah. And so we're growing a footprint where you'll be able to go into a local 
store and you'll be able to find Beanbox Coffee. And it's up to the customer how they want to engage with us. It's not up to us to dictate a business model. All we really need to care about is what's the lifetime value of our customers and are they keep coming back for our product? Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. I think if the listener is paying attention, what they're hearing, relationship, experience, LTV. Yeah, that's the best way to simplify it. And LTV is really, that's your North Star. You can look at repeat purchase rate, but L LTV is, is critical. The backside, of course, of LTV is going to be like, is it sustainable? What's your product margin? And what's right. the business's gross margin? But fundamentally, if you see LTVs rising, things are good. And if you do not, things are not good. And it's right. hard to sustain. Yep. Love that. Okay. Tell us about a bad decision. Once the coffee business was off, off the run. We've had a lot. One, one that I like to talk about is we have a faith in machinery and that's because of my background. So sure, sure. we do a ton of automation. If you're handling that much coffee, you do a lot of automation and there's one machine in particular that we purchased and like the throughput of the machine is that it, it can work with 60 bags per minute. And we're like, oh, that's great. Right now we're doing it by hand is five to 10 per minute and this and that. And we bring the machine in and we start using it and tweaking it and tuning it. And it can do 60 per minute, but only if you have like super fast robots running the machine. So you right. have an operator on one end and another operator on the other, and they need to take breaks and they need to bring in more material. And in reality, after many years, we're like, look, the real throughput on that is like, maybe 20 per minute and it requires two people to do it and so it only gave us like an incremental bump and so we've had to be very careful about like investing in automation because we couldn't operate without it but we've learned how to look at machinery and say all right realistically how much throughput will it give us and so i think we've limited those decisions now and we're making better ones but that's hard if you're a manufacturer so that's one the other one that's classic for any kind of product or e-commerce company is inventory. Forecasting inventory, especially when you have a seasonal business like we do. Right. I think we've gotten that wrong in two ways. And this is, an, an, I think, useful to think about. In some years, we have not had enough inventory and gone crazy trying to meet demand. Right manufacturing at the last minute and bringing in tons of people. And what we probably could have done is said, like, no, the inventory is limited. And so we're going to raise prices, right? Scarcity works. And so we've made, we've made mistakes around not having enough inventory, but last year is a great example where we made an error of having too much inventory. Mm. And we think the demand is going to be this big and it's only this big. And then you're chewing through inventory long right. after the fact, and that's not good, or you have to write it down. And so right. that, that's really difficult is if you don't have enough, maybe it's not an inventory problem, turn it into a pricing opportunity. Sure. That's good. But if you have too much, like there are very few ways to deal with that, except for what do you do with remnant? Do you have to write it down? Can you incentivize people to buy more? So inventory has been a constant challenge for us yeah. and we make mistakes all the time. My co-founder is better to do something right. Error on the side of action rather than inaction. Because right. if you're inactive around something you know is important, you will fail, period, because you're not going to try, you're not going to learn. Um, right. And so whatever the sphere is, we err on the side of action, failure, learning, and reaction. And we encourage everyone to do that here. 
I think that's paid off. Yeah. I loved what you said there. I just slightly said it around the pricing and inventory, obviously with edible arrangements, some of the franchises that I own, we have a seasonal business as well. Yep. Pricing isn't determined by me, so I can't play that game. But when I think about Valentine's day, rather than me trying to take the same product that I service every single day at 30, 50, a hundred bucks and making a couple thousand of them, I could make a couple hundred of them and double the price or triple the price. Which it's funny because most people actually think that we do raise the price. Interesting. But we don't. And so it's like mind boggling to a guy like me who owns businesses outside of that franchise, mm -hmm. where I understand the concept of what you just said, rather than trying to find another 50 drivers and another 50 people inside the store, we could just raise the price. And yes, it does limit the experience of some people. You, I don't, the, the operation itself <laughs> doesn't have to be crazy. And instead I would own a hundred of them as opposed to seven because I, cause it could actually get done. Yeah. It's interesting. There's, there's like, there's a, we were talking before about what's your character and how fast or frenzied do things move versus slow. And, and there's, there's a quote, I think it's from Henry Ford and it, I, I won't get it right by any means, but he basically says to most people, if they visit a factory and there's frenzied movement and tumult and things are going to and fro and everything is moving fast and there's noise and there's they think that's a a productive factory and he right. says no in in reality the most productive factories in that case they're quiet and they're methodical and nothing is rushing from point to point and i think that's true not just with like physical space and manufacturing but with sort of the operations of the business Right. You don't have to go crazy to meet demand by over manufacturing. There are other economic levers to pull like pricing or discounting in the case of over inventory that, so we, I think one of the things we also try and do is let's not go crazy all the time. And that's been an eight year lesson where normally I think people running a seasonal business are like, oh, things go crazy in Q4. And you're like, all right, try and imagine what it would take for things to be calm in Q4. And then you're going to have the best Q4 ever. And that's a real trick, but nobody wants to, we didn't want to think of it that way either. And you've paid handsomely, but at a certain point you realize like that calm approach will have you, will get better financial results than the frenzy. Yeah. hundred percent. You, like you said, we were talking about that before the recording button got hit, but some of that poise really is what we're describing Yeah, is you can be engaged. You can be hustling. You can be, things can be moving. You can be a factory producing things at a high level but there can be poise. There can be a flow that doesn't have to be chaotic. And I think that for the listener right now, they're not at seven figures. They're trying to figure out what that looks like for them. I'd love for you to take that moment before we move on to the speed round real quick here. How does the listener today, who is probably in a chaotic environment, they're wearing too many hats, they're overwhelmed, they're stressed, they're all the things, right? Like we've both been there where we're wearing too many hats, we're doing too many things and it doesn't feel poised. It doesn't feel methodical. It doesn't feel well thought out. What would you say to that person? Yeah, that's part of the game. What we found is our business has gone through what I call phase shifts and the chaos looks different as you phase shift from one mode to another. And similarly, like your constraints and your bottlenecks, they move from place to place in your business. And so I think getting comfortable with the idea that there's always going to be, again, like bottleneck, constraint, chaos, sure. yep. but as long as it's not everywhere, 
what you find as you phase shift is that those things move around. So at one point, cash may be a constraint. Another point, it becomes strategic. Similarly, like manufacturing could be a constraint, but then it can become like, oh, we can manufacture all the stuff we'd ever need. You go through these different phases. The way I like to see it is, I told you I got my start at Inc. a long time ago, and they had this great little picture. I think it was from their it might have been from their one of their first issues. It was a picture of a guy sweating, sitting at a desk. It was like a little cartoon. And he's wearing like 20 different hats on top sure. of one another. And one says manufacturing and the other says marketing and the other says accounting. And right. that's when you're building a business, like you are going to wear many hats. It's yep. important to know that the founder and CEO needs to wear the most hats. They're very small or partial hats, but the other folks in the business need to be focused on one or maybe two hats. And I think if you build a business where everybody has lots of hats, that's very chaotic. Yeah. So I would just look at growth as through the lens of different parts of the business are going to come into focus or shift around whether they're a constraint or an opportunity or strategic, and that's okay. And I would also say that like everybody has a real like growth mindset as a part of the entrepreneurial air in this country. But I will say we have learned very painfully that the cost of growth is sometimes exorbitant to the value of growth. So if you talk to people in accounting, they'll say, just to let you know, if you're growing more than 30% year over year, that's pretty extreme. It's going to cause issues with cash flow and hiring and space. And how many businesses do you know that they're like, oh my God, we had this great year. We went from 12 million to 21 million, but then the next year, like oh, we did 12 million again, but right. we took on new facilities and new equipment and we hired all these people and growth and contraction is also a part of life. And so we've tried to modulate away from hundred percent year over year growth, 60, 70, 80% to like, let's plan it out. Let's plan a year that looks like 30 or 40 or 50%. And if opportunistically more comes our way, we're going to be really happy. And so it's all a matter of your, I think of it as like you're pushing on the outside of a balloon. And as you're growing, you need to push on all parts of that balloon. And some parts of the balloon are going to, they're going to come in and be really tight and other parts are going to grow out. And that's just the business. So understanding what phase shifts look like, understanding that it's okay to grow and contract or not get it right and then learn from it. The more you do that, in my opinion, the more you are prepared for growing the company and graduating from, let's call it six to seven or eight yeah. or yeah. nine, but you have to be prepared for that and understand that is the natural course for a business. And it is not as investors would love to see it sometimes is like, what's your month over month? growth. What's your growth yeah. rate? Yeah, yeah. It's not that simple to be put in a box. It's a line. Exactly. It's never a straight line. No. And I think that <laughs> I feel like that sometimes I've given just even this week, I was reminding somebody, Hey, like when you look at the charts for the crypto or the, the market, it ticks up and then it comes down and then it ticks up and then it comes down. And that's how businesses tick. Come on. Like those are businesses. Let's move on to the speed round here. You've already answered this question, but I'm going to officially answer. So you can give us the real deal answer here. If you dwindle the entire coffee experience business down, yeah, what's the one trackable metric that you would take forever and ever going forward? I think it's LTV. Okay. And like, 
based because that gives you the understanding of what the experience is. Those people are because they, they like it. They're yeah. If you're not getting deeper with your customers, I don't know what kind of business that looks like. Sure. There are examples of businesses, which is like one and done. That's not the business I want to be in. Like I want, I want an ongoing engaged relationship with a customer that sees us and thinks of us as their source for great coffee. And for me, the, if the only metric there is what's your LTV across the board and sure you can cut that by different types of customers, a right. gift customer is a lower LTV than a subscription customer. Okay. But overall, you want to see lifetime value is that's your, the real asset of a business. And it, that is a proxy for what's your cash flow going to look like yep. and what kind it's, of revenue can you, it's produce? projectable. It is projectable. And the asset of the business is not just the facility and the equipment and the product on hand and the inventory, the asset of the business is the customer and the extent to which they're engaged. And if you optimize for that, then the rest you can figure out. Yeah, that's also sellable. It is very sell. And if you look, many companies are valued based upon like their engagement with or the extent to which their customers are engaged with their product or service and focus on that. And the rest you can figure out like yep. the rest is not as hard as understanding what it takes to get in deeper with your customer. That's a magic trick. And if you have a hint on how to do that and a product that will get you there, then follow that. Yeah, seriously, I would uh, recommend. And it doesn't have to be a product that is flashy. It can be coffee just every single day, yes. or it can be a, a, a home service. Like people love their home. Like it's okay. Like it doesn't have to be flowers or uh, something that makes them, I don't know. It just, it, we don't have to get wrapped up in what that makes that experience is in our brain of what we like had this good experience. They have a need. And if you can experience, or if they can take them through an experience that services their need at a higher level, they'll keep coming back because they still have the need. Yes. All right. What book would you recommend for a six-figure business owner? I think my one of my favorites is The Lean Startup. Okay. You know, I've heard of this book. What's your takeaway? Yeah. So my takeaway is short moves, experimentation, keep asking why. I think those are really great guidance for someone who's either starting a business or trying to take it to the next level is make small incremental changes, make changes that you can undo. Don't be afraid to fail. Keep trying to understand like why you're doing what you're doing or what, you know, why would a customer come to you? And it's those small incremental experiments and optimizations that I think over years and years build in the enterprise value of a business as it figures out that magic trick with the customer. The lean startup is for me, like whether our company is doing the 1 million, 2 million, 5 million, 10 million, 20 million, 50 million, a hundred million. I, my hope is that we always run it like a startup and we're always experimenting and building new product and trying to innovate. And so that's, I love that book for that reason is that it orients you not around like, this is the business of running a business, but this is the business of building a startup. Yeah. Love that. I have to check it out. We'll put it in the show notes as well. What do you think about intentionally networking or masterminding with other entrepreneurs? It's great. As I said, we try and talk to everyone. And so it could be a new vendor. It could be someone who's referred to us by an investor. Our, our MO is you talk to everyone, period. And so we're constantly on LinkedIn. We're constantly making connections like, oh, you're in the coffee space. I'm in the tea space. Let's just get on a call and see what you learned. Did the iOS shake up? hurt you or like, how's Facebook doing as a source of new customers or like, right. where did you get that tea from? So for me, we use LinkedIn a lot. 
we're always meeting with people, whether here or just virtually. And then we rely on our investors to introduce new people to us. So that networking is a big part of, I reserve a chunk every Friday to do that. And so if someone reaches out to me, I'm like, all right, let's take 20 minutes on Friday. And Friday is kind of like my reach out and connect and learn from people day. So that's how we approach it. That's good. Okay. I got one last question here for you, Matthew, if you lost it all, what would you do? I'm not sure what all means. Um, (laughs) All. I'd start another business, but I think if, again, I don't know what all is, but I I can always go back to writing software. I want to build things that have all these different cross-disciplinary things involved with them. Again, like inventory, manufacturing, supply chain, delivery, all of that, because I love moving from thing to thing and building it all. But I think if all of it went away tomorrow, I would either try and recreate that by starting another business or um, my training is in software. And I I am thrilled writing software all day, every day, but this type of building in e-commerce around coffee in a way that makes people happy, like it doesn't get better than that. Yeah. Love it. How can the listener connect with you? How can they find your coffee? Maybe they want to try some, they want to get a subscription. Yeah. How can they find you? So we have, we have a special code like everyone else. It's Beanbox Fam, F-A-M. So Beanbox Family. And I think it's 15% off. I'll make sure it's good. You can use that at beanbox.com. That's where you'll find us. If you want to reach out to me, just ping me on LinkedIn, Matthew Burke. You can also send a note to Matthew at beanbox.com. Again, we always love conversations from which we'll learn and hopefully they'll learn. And I would say happy caffeination to everyone. I, I agree with you. You've been just a great guest and a great mindset. I've enjoyed the conversation. We wish you nothing but success and blessing in your family, your business, all that fun stuff. So thank you for being Same here. Same to you. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Gathering the Kings. We hope you got a ton of value today and learned a thing or two about taking your business to seven figures and beyond. If you desire more and want a community around you to help you get there, I want you to go to gatheringthekings.com. That's gatheringthekings.com. And I want you to apply for our next Becoming a King 90-Day Intensive. We are extremely exclusive by nature as a group. What that means is that we're really wanting only the entrepreneurs who take their business and targets super serious to apply. So if that's you, you think you got what it takes to level up your business, I want you to go to gatheringthekings.com and apply. And we will see you on the other side.